Would you join me in a word of prayer before uh, we have a brief meditation this evening? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In the strong name of my rock and redeemer, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. One thousand six hundred and eighty-four years. That's the amount of years it's been since the very first recorded celebration of Christmas, which was held on December 25th, 336 AD, when Emperor Constantine was emperor of the Roman Empire. He was perhaps a Christian, and he was the first one to allow Christians to uh, publicly worship in Rome. In 1,684 years, a lot has happened. A lot of Christmases have come and gone, and 2020 is one of the, in my lifetime, strangest Christmases that I've experienced. I thought just for fun, as uh, I've wrestled through what to say tonight, and as I've wrestled through how strange it is to preach to folks with masks on, and how strange it is to not shake hands and hug people, and all the difficulties and weirdness that this season has brought us because of this global pandemic, I thought maybe some historical perspective would help us. The first nativity scene was created by St. Francis of Assisi. He got permission from the Pope to uh, take a manger and a couple of animals, an ox and a donkey and a lamb, and place the manger and these barn animals into a cave. And there he invited the villagers to come as he would preach about the babe from Bethlehem. We know this story from one of his disciples who shared with us that St. Francis could not even utter the name of Jesus. He was so moved to tears as he preached and shared. It was later said that the hay that was in the manger took on miraculous properties and was able to heal cattle that ate it. I'm sure the ranchers around there were excited. If we fast forward a little bit closer to our times, Charles Dickens, he wrote a very uh, influential book. It started this way, Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. And Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. In 2008, a book came out. It was written about Charles Dickens. It was titled, The Man Who Invented Christmas. And then many reviews and even academic papers were written about the book, debunking the idea that Charles Dickens was the one that invented Christmas. 
2017, a film was made of that book, The Man Who Invented Christmas. Anybody watched it? Maybe you could watch it this evening. And there was interesting time frame before Charles Dickens. He published this book on December 19th, 1843. And before Christmas Eve, the first printing had all sold out 6,000 copies for $20, five shillings a piece. And then in the following year, five additional printings were run and all of them sold out. He later would take this book on a tour. He would tour England. He would tour America. He even toured with Mark Twain as they would read their books to the populace. Right before Dickens wrote this book, his fresh to his memory was the Black Death of Europe. The Black Death of Europe, it raged through Europe from 1347 to 1654. And during those 300 years, it is estimated that 70 million to 200 million people died from the Black Death. And because of the Black Death, there was not much joy at Christmas time. There was not much merriment. In fact, the pilgrims and the Puritans, the folks that were criticized by Charles Dickens in his tale, they saw Christmas as something that should be subdued and it should not be a festive holiday. Some of their thinking was superstitious. They were afraid that if you were too joyous, you would bring upon yourself the wrath of God. And there was some evidence for this. I mean, look at the last 300 years with the Black Death. And perhaps Dickens didn't invent Christmas, but he definitely rescued it and restored it from the plague. People started to celebrate Christmas. Dickens actually opened people's eyes, and he argued that perhaps what is killing so many people, poverty, starvation, disease, bad air, bad water, perhaps we could conquer these by the generosity of the wealthy. He made that argument. And if you're familiar with the book, his main character, Scrooge, through a haunting on Christmas Eve, goes through a change of heart. In my lifetime, there was the Vietnam War. And there was Christmases from 1965 to 1972. And each year, there would be a truce, a ceasefire between the Viet Cong and the U.S. And they would not shoot at one another from midnight on Christmas Eve till midnight of Christmas Day. Stories are told of veterans who were awoken by the sheer ear-piercing silence that would envelop them. And in the distance, they could hear children singing. Further from us, World War I, 1914 to 1918, 
1914, the war was four, year, four months old, and many were surprised that it was still raging at Christmas time. Most of the combatants thought they would have been home by now, home for the holidays, home with their loved ones. But on the Western Front on Christmas Eve, a strange thing happened at multiple locations, and there's even stories along the Eastern Front that there was celebration. It started with the Germans. The German troops hunkered down in their trench. They started to sing Christmas carols, full-throated and full-hearted in German. And across the fields of dead man's land, the Brits, the French, they began singing Christmas carols in their own tongues. And they heard the Germans in broken English start yelling, Come here! Come out. And of course, they were skeptical. Perhaps this was a ruse. Perhaps this was some sort of manner in which to bring them out. But then they saw the Germans emerging from the trenches and walking across dead man's field, no man's land, unarmed. And one by one, the English, the French, they started to join them out in no man's land. And there are accounts, there are stories where those who saw those days, they greeted one another with small gifts, cigarettes, chocolate, a bottle of wine. And there at the, in the battlefield, men who just hours ago were trying to kill one another were brought together because of Christmas. There was even a soccer match that broke out at one point. And the men, the men helped one another remove dead bodies of their fallen comrades from no man's land. Sadly, this was not the end of World War I. This war would go on for another four years. And then the first Christmas after World War I ended was 1918. You probably know something about 1918 now that we're living in 2020. 1918 was the year of the Spanish flu, the great pandemic. And instead of being a season of joy and rejoicing because the world war had ended, people were dying at home. The first, or excuse me, the second wave of the pandemic hit and it was at its peak in November of 1918, and it lulled a little bit in December of 1918, and a third wave came along after the turn of the year in 1919. There were actually more people that died from the Spanish flu than died in World War I. Today we find ourselves in a pandemic, we find ourselves in a world, in a U.S., in an America that is far from united. We find ourselves in a place of history that many of us are confused. Perhaps you're frightened. Maybe you're anxious. And we look at what's going on around us, and we are ready. We're ready for change. 
We're ready for next Christmas to be a Christmas where we can shake hands and give hugs and not wear masks and leave our homes and not be afraid. We're ready to see our loved ones who are in nursing homes. We're ready to jump on planes and see one another. We're ready. We're anxious. We're longing. And through these 1,684 years, Christmas has continued to march on. And even before those years, when Jesus Christ came into the world, I love how the message uh, translated, it's a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. I love how he puts it in John chapter 1, where he says that God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did on that night. God, the second person of the Trinity, put on flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. And it's amazing, it's mind-boggling to think that the God of the universe... Jesus put himself into the arms of a teenage girl and a young man, the firstborn. And I can attest, being a firstborn, that there's a lot of experimentation that goes on with firstborns. Because the folks, the parents, just don't know their game yet. They don't know what's up. And I'm sure it was much easier for them because Jesus was perfect. I can't say that. About myself. And you might think, perfect? Yes, he was perfect. Imagine never having to say, I'm sorry. Imagine never having to say, my bad. Imagine never having to say, oops, would you please forgive me? Or as Wisconsin would say, oop, sorry. That's how they say it, right? Did I say it right? People are wearing masks. I don't know if they're here to rob me or they're not laughing at my jokes. But Jesus never had to apologize. I struggle just to live up to my own standards. I struggle to wake up at the time in the morning that I said I was going to wake up because there's this thing called snooze button. I struggle to get up and get motivated to work out or to eat right or to do those things that I vowed, that I said I would do. I struggle to live up to my own expectations. And I shudder to think. Just think if God has expectations. Just think if the God of the universe who made everything, who made me, who made you, just think if he had expectations. Could we live up to those? I think of some of the great saints of old. And I think, boy, how good do I need to be? Do I need to be as good as Mother Teresa? Do I need to be as good as Pope John Paul? Do I need to be as good as the Apostle Paul? Do I need to be as good as the Apostle John? Do I need to be, how good do I need to be? And I get scared because I know I'm not that good. I know I fall well short of all those people I've mentioned. Except perhaps St. Paul. Because do you remember when he said, here's a trustworthy saying. In other words, you can take this one to the bank. 
Here's a trustworthy saying. Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And when I read that, and when I understand what Jesus Christ came when he moved into the neighborhood, when I understand that he came to save the worst of sinners like me, he came, he lived this perfect life, the life that I should be living but I'm completely incapable of living. And he died the death that I should have died. And all I have to do to activate this gift from him is to have faith, to believe, to declare my allegiance to King Jesus, to follow him and nothing else, and he will save me. And as far as I'm concerned, my personal self-interest, this is really important. And I would assume your personal self-interest, Jesus saving your soul, is super important for you. But there's more to the story. What do we do with 1,684 years of war? What do we do with 1,684 years and more of pestilence, of disease, of starvation, of poverty, of injustice? What do we do about that? That's where a text from Isaiah 9 comes in, where it says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a Savior is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Do you remember when he was alive on planet Earth? He's still alive today. That's the good news. But when he was here on Earth with us, he fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. And by the way, they didn't count the women for whatever reason back then. Imagine a government that out of thin air can produce bread. I know our government out of thin air produces money, but that's a whole different thing. And what's the worst that could happen to this man? The worst that could happen to him is he could be killed. But in a few months from now, I trust and pray and hope it'll be warmer and there'll be signs of life outside. Tulips will perhaps be up and in bloom and we will gather again and perhaps we will gather with masks on. Perhaps we still won't be able to shake hands and give hugs. Perhaps there will still be much anxiety and fear and concern in this world. But on that day, we come to celebrate this man, Jesus, who was crucified, who died and was buried, but on the third day rose again. He pulled off Easter. He walked out of his grave, and he has made that promise for everyone who is allegiant to him, everyone who follows him, everyone who has faith and belief in Jesus will one day walk out of their grave. And more than that, he will return, 
And he will take the government upon his shoulders and he will rule with an iron scepter. And you and I who follow King Jesus, we are told in Revelation, he will give us the scepter to rule with him on his throne over the nations. All will be made right. All will be made well. Jesus will return and he will place all things in the universe He will make all things right. I love how Tolkien, how he grabs some of this ideology, these these issues. He was a Catholic, and when he wrote The Lord of the Rings, one of his characters, Gandalf, is talking to uh, one of the hobbits. I don't remember if it was Merry or Pip. It's one of them, I believe. And he was scared. It was the night before battle. And Gandalf was trying to give him hope. And Gandalf said that one day all sad things will become untrue. And Tolkien was exactly right. But it doesn't just happen in Mordor. It happens in Cavalier. All sad things will come untrue because of Christ. So to symbolize our joy, our reception of Christ, to symbolize the coming of this light, we're going to sing Silent Night together. We're going to uh, light candles. And uh, I want you to just uh, reflect And think about Jesus Christ and his great gift that he has done for us.